My name is Brianna Bunting, and my husband Michael and I have been Covenant Community members here for five years. Um, we currently serve as hosts for the Pflugerville Community Group, led by the DeLunas. So, <laughs> and today I'll be reading Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. What's up, everybody? Uh, okay, as I was saying, my name is Yusuf. I'm the college director here at The Well. Um, I love it. I love it. Um, and it is my good pleasure to be with you all this afternoon. Um, if you are new here, welcome. Uh, we're glad you are here um, as you journey with us, as we continue on in our sermon series that we've called Uniquely Jesus. And in this sermon series, we've been exploring um, passages that are uniquely found in only one of the three synoptic gospels, right? That's Matthew, Mark, or Luke, which is the book that we'll be in today. Now, as Tori's mentioned before, Luke is an author. He cares a lot about stewardship and finances, um, riches. He talks a lot about riches. He mentions the idea of riches more than all of the other gospel writers combined. And though we see the idea of riches here in this passage, I'm actually convinced that the passage we read today is actually a lot deeper than the topic of mere riches. I think the passage we read today is actually meant to touch on the essence of reality. What, what really matters in life, right? And what are the things that will actually blind us from seeing reality clearly? Now, now, why do I believe that that's what this passage is about? Because of the context that this passage is found. We started in verse 12, but if you zoom out to verse 1, you see that Jesus is teaching. And he's not just teaching on money. He's teaching on everything, Right? He's teaching on earthly and heavenly realities. He's talking about the kingdom of God, Holy Spirit, man, uh, son of man, angels. Right, He even touches on future realities. He's, he's giving his disciples insight into what's going to happen, that they're going to be persecuted, and that they are to rely on the strength of the Holy Spirit. Right, And so, so Jesus is teaching on what's real and what really matters and we see that in verse 1 of this chapter, that people are so enamored by what Jesus has to say, that there's a crowd of thousands of people, and they're literally tramping, trampling over one another to, to get insight into what Jesus is saying. And so this is the context that we find ourselves in. It's in the midst of this setting that as Jesus is shedding light on reality, seen and unseen, and as people are crushing each other to hear more, he's interrupted. He's interrupted by a man in the crowd. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
And so there's a lot we can actually say about this man, but I want to spend most of our time focusing on what Jesus has to say, especially in verse 13 and 14, because I believe that those two verses, what he says there sets the tone for the rest of this passage. He goes from addressing this man to issuing a warning to the crowd and his disciples. Take care and be on guard. It's like Jesus, Jesus wants us to know and understand what's real in life and what really matters in life. He, he so desires that we would, we would know truth. And as much as he desires for us to see reality clearly, there is something in this man, right? There's something that, can, that he sees in this man that will actually blind us to, to the reality of what matters. There's something that can distort our view of reality and at worst, cause us to live out of touch with reality, right? Um, do y'all remember the D.A.R.E. program? Did any of y'all go through the D.A.R.E. program in elementary school? Okay, so for, for those of you who don't know, D.A.R.E. was like an anti-drug and like alcohol program that where cops would go to elementary schools, they would kind of teach students the danger of drugs and alcohol, right? Uh, and if you were in D.A.R.E., you remember the song because it was catchy, right? D, I won't do drugs. I won't have an attitude, or I will respect myself. E, I will educate me now. Right? Was I on pitch? I was on pitch. Right, Chris? Casey? Was I on pitch? All right, what do y'all remember about the D.A.R.E. program, right? Other than the fact that it didn't work for most people, right? <laughs> Seriously. And not that I did drugs, but I had an attitude, right? And the concept of self-respect was just a little too deep to grasp as a fifth grader, right? But there's one thing I remember other than the song. It's that every now and then, the cop would show up with these goggles, these special pair of goggles, right? And they were meant to simulate what you would see if you were like super drunk. They were meant to show just how much too much alcohol distorts your view of reality. It distorts your vision. It keeps you from seeing clearly. And my guess is that they were hoping we would try them on and say, oh man, this is terrible. We, w we never want to do this. But we were in fifth grade. Of course we thought they were awesome, right? <laughs> right? We were like, oh my gosh, like trying to walk in a straight line, falling over, like doing it again, again, again. We're like, let's do it. It was fun. Because there was nothing to lose, right? Yet the consequences of actually drinking and driving the consequences of distorted vision in real life, those consequences are grave, are they not? Like you put your life at risk, you put the life of other people at risk. And the same is true spiritually. And so God wants us to understand the essence of, of, of spiritual reality, like reality, physical and spiritual realities that we would navigate reality with wisdom and understanding. So what is it? What is it that Jesus wants to warn us against that can be like those goggles if we put them on, right? That, that so distorts our view, our perception of what's real and what really matters. What does he issue this warning against? Now, most of you know the answer, thanks to our scripture reader, but pretend you don't. What would you guess, right? I mean, it's not pride. That would make sense to me. Someone who thinks they're all that in a bag of chips, but they're really not out of touch with reality, right? It's not lust, which would also make sense to me. Lust undealt with, right? 
can, can lead you to make decisions that in the moment feel like they will bring life and the fullness of satisfaction, but in reality, bring chaos and destruction out of touch with reality. But it's not pride, it's not lust, it's covetousness. What? Like, I did not see that coming, Jesus, right? I didn't see that coming. Covetousness? What is covetousness? Let's define it. Here's what it means in the Greek. A greedy desire to have more. A greedy desire to have more. And I can't believe, like, I can't, I can't be the only one that thinks that that's a little shocking. Over pride and lust, covetousness, right? Turns out I'm not the only one that's shocked by this. Timothy Keller has a book called Counterfeit Gods. I just called him Timothy. <laughs> Does anyone call him that? Sorry, I feel like I sound like his mom. Uh, Tim Keller wrote Counterfeit Gods. And in it, he talks about a time in his church when they were walking through the seven deadly sins and his wife made a prediction. She said, I think the week you talk on greed will be the week you have the lowest attendance. And she was right. People packed out for lust and pride, for greed. Barely anyone showed up. Why? Because no one thinks they struggle with it. So here's a quote from his book. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it's not a problem for them. See, greed is sneaky. It's a, it's a silent killer, which is why Jesus says, hey, take care, be on guard, be on guard. So what I wanna do for the remainder of our time today is I really wanna look at, okay, how, in what ways can greed distort our view, our perception of reality? And then we'll talk about how we overcome it, all right? <clears throat> How does greed distort our view of reality? Well, we see our first hint right after Jesus's warning in verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Okay, so we all understand what Jesus is saying here, right? Like your value as a human being is not found in how much stuff that you have. But the greed within us and the greed around us can blind us to that reality if we're not careful. Okay, so, so make no mistake, your life is not just valuable, but the fact that you are like living and breathing right now, the fact that you exist is nothing short of a miracle. You are a living, breathing miracle. And I know that sounds fuzzy, right? I know that sounds like something Oprah would say, like, yeah, everyone's a miracle. Like that's, it's not meant to be all feely. I, I mean that like, a court, like statistically, you're a miracle. Right, the fact that you exist. Dr. Ali Benazir, he is a medical doctor, also has a PhD in philosophy, um, and he graduated from Harvard, so he's a really smart guy. Um, he did a study on the probability of your existence from a biological standpoint. Like, like, what are the odds that you exist right here and right now? And he starts simple. It says, biologically, you are the byproduct of one seed and one egg, right? Hopefully that's not news to any of the adults in here, right? <laughs> If it is, you can email Tori. He'll meet up with you, explain how it all works. You're, okay, byproduct, one seed, one egg. Well, one out of how many eggs and one out of how many seeds? Well, over the average woman's reproductive lifespan, it's one out of 200,000 eggs. 
Over the average man's reproductive lifespan, one out of four trillion seeds. And you come about as a one-to-one combination of the two, right? But then he, he then goes on to say, well, think about it. What are the odds that your parents meet when they could have met anyone else in the world, right? Like if someone is late to the first date, you don't exist anymore, right? <laughs> if someone decides to go to Japan instead of Morocco on a mission trip, you don't exist anymore, right? And so, so what are the odds that your parents meet? And remember, the odds that you exist are the same odds that they exist. And then he goes on to say, at one point in human history, it was incredibly easy to die at a very young age, at different points in human history. So what are the odds that your ancestors lived to reproductive age and that your lineage remains unbroken? And he just goes on and on and on. And he comes up with a number so big, I didn't even know how to pronounce it, right? But he likens it to this. He says, the odds that you exist are the same odds that two million people all holding a dice in their hand. But instead of the dice having six sides, it has a trillion sides. The odds that you exist are the same odds that two million people roll a trillion-sided dice and land on the same number. First try. Let that sink in. Like the odds that you are here right now are pretty much impossible, and yet here you are. Your existence is miraculous, and to think that after all of that, you're just here to accumulate a bunch of stuff, get a promotion, and then die? It's foolish, but with the goggles of greed, you'll believe that. You'll live as if stuff is the only thing that matters. And none of us are immune to that, by the way. Take care, be on guard. He's not just talking to the crowd, he's talking to his disciples as well. No one is immune to that. And I'm speaking from experience, right? I'm tempted to live for riches and riches only often. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't. My wife and I live in Terrytown. It's a wealthy neighborhood in Austin. And every time I meet someone new and tell them where I live, I know what they're thinking immediately. Oh man, these guys are rich. And I let them think that, because you know, it feels kind of nice, right? <laughs> It feels kind of nice. I let them think that I'm a millionaire for about 10 seconds before I tell them, hey, we're renting a quadplex unit, right? And tear it down. We go on walks around the neighborhood all the time. Some of the most beautiful houses you'll see. And I would be lying if there aren't times where I can just feel the wealth in the atmosphere, right? Or I can't hear that, like I can hear the mansion speak to me, pursue me, (laughs) right? Live for me. I'd be lying if I said a mansion with 10 bedrooms doesn't sound nice, right? I'm serious. I have to be careful or else I'll get sucked in to believing that my value lies in my possessions. And to believe that is to live out of touch with reality. And yet greed can get you there. Greed can blind us to the value of a human life. Let's move on. Oh my goodness, what a crack. Did y'all hear that? Come on, hold on. If you will permit me to... I was low-key hoping that was just in my head, but no. <laughs> um, okay, how else does greed... I'm just sorry. I'm just going to put that. All right. How else does greed distort our perception of reality? Well, then Jesus goes on to tell a story about a rich man. We can pick up in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Stop. What do you notice here? What do you notice it says the land of a rich man, okay? 
So homeboy is already rich, yet, yet though he's already rich, his land produced plentifully, okay? So who's responsible for that? Whose fault is that? According to Psalm 85 and Psalm 67 and a variety of other scriptures, God is responsible for blessing his land. Psalm 85, 12, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Psalm 67, 6, the earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. The psalmist would say that the rich man's land producing plentifully is actually just a good God giving a good gift, right? So this man is already rich and still God, out of his own goodness and generosity, decides to bless him. So what does that tell us? It's not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to have money. It's, it's not a sin to have monetary blessings, okay? So can I just have some of our rich people in the room just breathe a sigh of relief, right? Just for a second. I mean, some of you are wealthy and you know it. Raise your hand if that's you. Just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, some of y'all are wealthy and you know it and you've been sweating bullets since the moment I started talking. Like, oh my gosh, am I in sin? Right? You ever around Christians that like they're rich, but they just awkwardly pretend like they're don't? Like, oh, we're, we're struggling. No, you don't. It's okay. It's okay. Right? Here's the problem. The reality is that God provides, but when greed comes into the picture, we'll believe the lie that we provide and we provide only, that we did it alone. Out of touch with reality. That's just not true. And this is why Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, after God has led the Israelites out of Egypt, into the, as he's leading them into the promised land, he says this, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You notice the same two words. Take care, right? Beware. Be on guard. Where God warns the Israelites that after all he's done for them to bless them, that they don't say in their hearts that they did it alone. And the rich fool obviously didn't get this memo. He didn't. How do I know that? Notice he never mentions God. And yet the amount of times he uses the words I or my, 11 times in three verses, from verses 17 to 19. When we experience abundance and greed gets into the picture, we tend to not only forget who our blessings come from, but we forget, we tend to believe that we made it happen alone. And to think that is to be out of touch with reality, right? Greed blinds us to the reality that God provides. Greed doesn't just blind us to the reality that God provides. It also blinds us to the fact that we don't have as much control as we would like to think. Right? I mean, the number of times he says, I will, in verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, and he said this, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, he doesn't say, I hope, right? 
or if God wills. He says, I will, four times in one and a half verses. And yet by the end of the passage, 0% of what he's so sure is going to, he's going to accomplish actually comes to pass. This man, he's overconfident in his ability to speak reality into existence. He doesn't realize that just because he's rich doesn't mean that he's God, right? He assumes that he's in complete control and he's out of touch with reality to assume that because it's just not true. It's not true. This is why James 4 says this, verse 13, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I wonder why James is really seeking to drive this point home, especially to people that make a profit, right? I think it's because he knows that when you have money, you, you have the ability to just manipulate your circumstances. You can, you can kind of do whatever you want. If you got enough money, right? You want a Lamborghini, you buy a Lamborghini. You want to go to Dubai, you go to Dubai. You, you do whatever you want. And James isn't saying, hey, don't make plans. He's not saying that. He's just saying that at the end of the day, you are not completely in control. You're not completely in control. And a heart that understands that is a heart that will make plans with a posture of humility that says, you know what, if God wills. If God wills. And this is obviously not the posture of the rich fool. Greed has blinded him to the illusion of control. To think that we have any sort of control apart from God's will, it's just not reality. It's not true. And it can actually be really, really frustrating when we're operating under that presumption because God has a way of snapping us back to reality and reminding us we actually don't have that much control, as much control as we would like to think, yeah. right? Uh, anyone in college ministry knows that the first week of school is like the most crucial time in college ministry. That's when students are most open to meeting new people, making new friends. And so as a college ministry, we, were, we plan to have an event every single night for the first week. But that first night, that first event is the most important because it sets the tone for the rest of them. And so we decided to do like an outdoor sports hang at a central location on campus. The idea is we'd be having so much fun. People walking by would be like, oh, it's fun to join in, get to meet them. And so we were very strategic. We planned, we prayed. And then the night of our event, it rained. <laughs> and no one saw it coming because it was like 100 plus degrees two weeks prior, right? And I was frustrated. I was so frustrated. Like, gosh, why do we live in Texas, right? <laughs> Feels like Satan controls the weather here. People were going to get saved and then it rained. Like, what happened, right? Why was it so frustrating? I bought into the illusion of control, right? And was ultimately faced with the reality that I'm not in complete control. And all of us fall into that trap all the time, right? Here's the, here's the thing, though. The point is the more money you have, the easier it is to fall into that trap. And so if greed has your heart, you will be blind to the fact that your sense of control is not real. You don't have ultimate control. You're not God. What's really interesting about this story is that though the rich fool's greed is on full display, this entire parable, we see something really interesting towards the end of it. We see in, we see in the next verse, there's like this underlying motive 
behind his greed. It serves as like the the driving force behind his greed in, in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. That word merry means to make happy or to be joyful, right? You see all along the rich fool, he's just searching for true fulfillment. Soul level satisfaction, which is not a bad desire at all, actually. The problem is that his greed got him to believe the lie that he knows what's best for his soul. I will say to my soul, soul, greed ultimately blinded him to the reality of where true fulfillment is found. He just wants to be happy. And that's actually not a bad desire. See, the rich fool isn't the only one searching for true fulfillment. The reality is right now, you are too, right? Like, I don't need to know your story. I don't need to know anything about you. I don't need to know what you like to do on the weekends in order to confidently say that right now, as I speak to you, there is an overwhelming desire in you to be merry, to be happy, to be fulfilled, to find happiness. Like, have you ever asked yourself, why do I do the things that I do? Or why do I like the things that I like? Right? Like, okay, let's start with me. What's something I like? Pumpkin cream cold brews from Starbucks. Yes. No, that definitely deserves a round of applause. I mean, I love them. They're amazing. Right? Why do I like pumpkin cream cold brews? Why do I like them? Right? Don't get it twisted. Pumpkin spice lattes, pumpkin cream cold brews, not the same thing. Right? They're not the same. They're related, but they're not the same. They're like distant cousins. I don't like pumpkin spice lattes. But it feels like under the right set of circumstances, I will die for a perfectly spiced pumpkin cream cold brews. Why is that? Why is that? Because I like them. They make me happy. They put a smile on my face and a warmth in my heart, right? And I'm not ashamed to say it, right? Like, am I being judged right now? Probably, but I don't care. I don't care, right? There are times where I'm at Starbucks and they forget to sprinkle the like pumpkin spice when they hand me, hand me my, and I will take off the latte or take off the lid and like stand there, get their attention. Like, hey, y'all forgot to sprinkle the pumpkin spice on my cold brew. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're so sorry. I'm like, no, it's all good. Just don't let it happen again. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Why? A perfectly spiced pumpkin cream cold brew, it makes me happy. The end, it's not that deep, right? And now the times where I'm discontent, right? Times where I'm discontent, it's because I don't have something that I believe will bring me joy, will bring me happiness. So you want to know a secret? How can I confidently say that's not a bad desire? Like, how can I just say that with confidence? Because it's a God-given one. It's a God-given desire to find happiness, to find fulfillment, to find soul-level satisfaction. But what greed does it blinds us to the reality of where true fulfillment is found. And we'll believe the lie that we know what's best for our souls. And that doesn't mean that we don't ask God for things that we desire. It does mean we don't make a God out of the things that we desire. We trust that God knows what's best for our souls, and we don't. However, when greed is full grown, we just won't believe that. We'll believe otherwise, right? And so finally, in verse 20, we see that God has had enough. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? 
That word fool means to lack wisdom. It means to lack understanding of the way the world works, out of touch with reality. Make no mistake, to think that your value is found in the abundance of your possessions, right? To to not understand that that God is the one that provides for you, that God has provided everything that you have, to to buy into the illusion of control and to believe the lie that that you know what's best for your soul, you know where your soul will, will find true satisfaction alone apart from God, to believe all of those things with confidence, make no mistake, it's very clear what this scripture is saying. To to believe those things is to live out of touch with reality. You're a fool. You're a fool. And greed, full grown, it will get us there if we're not careful. If we're not careful. And we see here, God issues the greatest reality check of all time. Says, hey man, tonight your soul is required of you. In other words, tonight you're dying and there's nothing you can do about it. And I don't care how rich you are. Nothing shocks your perspective of what's really true, what really matters in this life, what's really real, like a prognosis does. Nothing does. Nothing shocks your, your view of reality like a, like a prognosis. All of us in here are, are able to get to the, the point in our minds where we can understand intellectually that we are not going to live forever on this side of eternity. We're all going to die one day. And most of us get that. We understand that. We're like, yeah. As much as we understand that, few things are as sobering as hearing from a doctor that you've got very little time to live and there's nothing you or they can do about it. Few things are as sobering as that. Um, A couple weeks ago, my wife and I were at Myrtle Beach and we were staying at a a beach house that some of our friends own and they are rich. There's no hiding it, right? Uh, They live in Texas, but their secondary home is this beach house on Myrtle Beach. They go there every summer. It's great, they invited us, and they were telling me the story of how they actually bought the beach house. They said that they actually put in an offer, $200,000 less than asking price, and they get a call that the owner accepted it. They're like, oh my goodness, wow. They show up to move into the house, and it's fully furnished, right? And they just were mind-blown at the generosity of this guy, that he would just give them over $20,000 worth of furniture, And they come to find out the owner of the house was recently diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. He was given a very short time to live. And he didn't care about who the highest bidder was. He wanted to spend his last days with his family, so he was just gonna sell his house to the first bidder. But of course, my friends had no idea of that, right? And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness. Like, I have no idea who the owner of this house is or what his relationship to his stuff was. I don't know. I don't know if he had been saving up for that beach house or if he inherited it. He was just working his way through the promotion to be able to afford it. Like, I have no idea. But what I'm willing to bet is that knowing that his time was short shifted his perspective on what really matters in life. And at the drop of a hat, all of his stuff was just not a big deal to him anymore. Nothing gets us to think about what's really true And what really matters in life, like coming face to face with our own mortality. And if greed becomes full grown, it will blind us to what really matters, what's really worth pursuing, right? Greed will get us to buy the lie that we're invincible, out of touch with reality, because the reality is that we're not. So what do we do? 
how do we guard against this? How do we guard against greed and its trap? I believe the last verse of our passage actually answers this for us. Jesus says that the rich fool is someone who stores up treasure for themselves and is not rich towards God. See, the problem was never being rich. It's just that he, he wasn't rich towards the right things. He wasn't rich towards God. And it seems to me like being rich towards God is the antidote to being ruined by greed. So the question is, how do we be rich towards God? Like, how do we actually do that? I don't think it's possible until we first see that in Christ, God has been rich towards us, right? Like all of us, like sheep, have, have gone astray. We've all sinned against the God of the universe. And those sins separates us from the, the God of reality. Jesus, the creator of all, the, the owner of all, the rich king of the universe, steps out of heaven on a rescue mission to reconcile us back to God. And during his time on earth, no earthly inheritance, right? No earthly wealth was homeless, majority of his ministry, died with nothing but the clothes on his back. Yet, yet where the rich fool's soul is demanded of him, Christ gives up his soul on the cross. Why is that? Why? So that you and I, who have without a doubt allowed, greep, uh, uh, allowed greed to creep in on some level, where, where we have desired God's stuff more than we desire God himself, where, where we say with our thoughts and actions that we actually believe that we provide for ourselves, not that God provides for us, you and I who often buy into the illusion of control, where we believe the lie that we know what's best for our souls, better than the maker of our souls. All of this spitting in the face of God, the author of reality, and yet Christ would die on a cross being mocked as a fool, by the way, so that those of us who often behave as fools would find forgiveness and reconciliation, that we would be reconciled to him. And not only that, but that our souls would find the eternal satisfaction and the true fulfillment that it craves. Christ became poor. The, the rich king of the universe became poor so that in him we might be rich. Hallelujah. 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 And so being rich towards God, it means first receiving that truth and then living it out by seeking first the kingdom of God. If you ask Jesus what really matters, he would tell you what matters the most is seeking first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God matters more than anything else. It is the first priority, right? The first priority that God is actually out on a mission to redeem lost souls and he wants us to be a part of it. We are now called not to just live for earthly treasures, but to store up treasures in heaven. And so what will your treasures in heaven be? I've often thought that treasures in heaven is just all the stuff that Jesus is going to get us, give us when we get there, right? Like we know there's going to be a streets of gold and all sorts of luxurious perks that we'll enjoy for eternity. I'm sure that's the case. But one thing I didn't realize until exploring this passage is that the people we see in heaven that are there as a result of the ways that we sought first the kingdom of God, that the people we see in heaven that are there because of seeds that we planted on earth, they're going to be our treasure too. This was true for Paul. 
when he's writing to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy that when we get to heaven, And we look around and we see souls that are there because of seeds that we planted on earth. Seeds we may not have gotten to see the fruit of while we were here. That that we would seek to bless others with the way that we've been blessed. With our times, talents, and treasures. And that they would come into the kingdom as a result of that. Paul says we'll see those people and we'll consider them treasures forever. Forever. They will be our treasures in heaven. I'll close with this story. Paige is one of our college leaders in our college ministry, uh, and her one place is an organization that works with single teen moms. And so during our DMI, which is our kind of summer college evangelism training program, Paige was growing a little discouraged because she's planting seeds. She's, she's seeking to build relationships with these girls, and most of them are just ghosting her. And I told her, hey, just be faithful. Just be faithful. Just keep planting seeds. You may not see the fruit of your labor until you get to heaven and you get a tap on the shoulder from one of these girls, right? And she tells you and thanks you for for planting seeds in her life because she wouldn't be in the kingdom of God if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for your faithfulness. And I told Paige that and she immediately lit up. She was like, oh my gosh, that would be really, really cool. Well, fast forward a couple months and Paige was given the opportunity to start a Bible study with her girls A couple weeks after that, Paige is given the opportunity to share the gospel with one of these girls. And the girl decides to accept Christ. And in an instant, she enters into the kingdom of God. Like, like what? Right? Like, so so not only that, right? But things started to change for Kaylee, who's the girl that Paige led to Christ. She gets accepted into a program that not only houses teen moms, but it provides them with an education and disciples them how to follow Christ. Every morning, these teen moms are getting, getting up and they're in the word together. I guarantee you, when Paige gets to heaven and she gets a tap on sh- her shoulder and it's Kaylee and, and Kaylee's descendants, people that were also impacted by Kaylee's decision to follow Christ. When Paige sees that, I guarantee you, when it dawns on her that she got to be a part of making that happen, she's not going to care about what car she drove or whether she could afford a Tesla or whether she could afford a house in Terrytown, or what inconveniences it cost her on earth to serve these ladies. She is going to rejoice for an eternity. She's going to look at them and she's going to marvel at how God could take something so small, such as her earthly obedience, and make such an internal impact in the lives of others. And Paige won't be the only one rejoicing. She won't be the only one experiencing this. The home Kaylee is in now with all the other teen moms probably took some fundraising to purchase. And so everyone that donated money will marvel at how God God would take their small act of generosity and make such an eternal impact in the lives of others. But it spans beyond giving. Everyone who dedicated their time to serving at this home, to to serving these teen moms, will see their impact in the kingdom and they will marvel at how God took such small acts of service, generosity of time, and made an eternal impact in the lives of others. When you treasure the king, you will seek first his kingdom 
When Christ becomes your treasure, his treasure, the souls of other people, becomes your treasure too. And you will seek to use whatever means necessary to see souls enter the kingdom of God. You'll give your time, your talents, your treasures. You'll be rich towards God in a way that not only guards your heart from greed, but allows you to be a part of God's cosmic redemptive plan to redeem other people to himself. And there is no greater mission to be a part of. So let us not squander our, our time on earth being greedy, hoarding possessions that we didn't come up with ourselves. Because at the end of the day, you die, you take nothing with you. That's not true. You take your relationship with the Lord and the people that you've impacted for his kingdom. Well, family, would we be rich towards God? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it feels like thank you is just not enough. It's just not enough. When I, when I ponder the generosity of Christ, that though he owned everything, would step into our physical reality, pay the price for our sin, so that we could have intimacy with you, God, God, you have been abundantly rich towards us. There, there aren't words to describe that. And so if there's anyone here today that doesn't, doesn't quite understand that, Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would press upon them just how valuable they are, that, that God shed his blood, that they would be redeemed. And I pray that for those of us who have received that, when we are tempted to be greedy, we would remember how you've been rich towards us and we would seek to be rich towards you and not only guard ourselves against greed, that it's hard to be greedy when you're generous, but as we are generous, we get to be used by you to make an eternal impact in your kingdom. What an amazing story of redemption, God. We thank you for this. We ask that we would actually live in alignment with this and not in alignment of our own skewed sense of reality, but the reality of the gospel and the kingdom of God. I pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.